This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Fionn McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and ghosts who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Mero Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, we retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and your Fireside bard. Welcome to the 209th episode of Fireside. Today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we have an Irish folktale of a proud princess. And that is going to be very difficult to say without making too many plosive sounds on the microphone. But before we get down to that, a very big warm welcome to you all, whether you're new or returning. Um, if you it's your first time, this is a great introductory episode. If this is not your first time, uh, welcome, welcome back. And all the usual ways you can support the podcast, you can do so by following me over on Instagram, at Fireside Bard. It's the best place to send me a message, just to say hello if you have any comments or queries. <clears throat> That's the best place to get me. If you're not on social media, you can email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast more directly, you can buy my book, Garden Sea, A Neo-Myth of Home, which is available in paperback or from Amazon. We can ship the paperback all around the world, or you can have the ebook instantly at Amazon. All the links are in the description below. And if you want to support the podcast in another way, you can join Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com, where for as little as five euro a month, or you can even pay more if you want, you can gain access to bonus material, not just for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network work. Those are the cells out of the way. It is very good to be back. It has been an unintended couple of weeks off Fireside and without going too much into it, um, the absence was not intended because uh, I'm just back from a tour of America. I've been in America for the last month or so touring around the States with uh, the world of musicals, which um, was great to be back over there, great back to be working in America. Uh, But in the last week of our tour, um, we had a bit of an accident. Um, We were driving along the I-80 in Wyoming, and our bus crashed. Um, Now, thankfully, everyone was okay. We had a truly, truly exceptional driver. And basically, for anyone who doesn't know the I-80, or particularly that stretch of I-80 in Wyoming, um, it is... Um, we heard a part of it was affectionately known as the highway to heaven and basically there was 60 mile an hour winds and our bus which was a big sleeper bus with bunks and a living area and everything it was very much our home for the couple of weeks we were over there (coughs) beg your pardon sorry to clear my throat there but basically our bus was blown into the path of a FedEx truck and the entire front of the bus was destroyed and our driver somehow managed to keep the bus on the road keep it on all fours so most of us, were we were all just kind of jolted forward um, 
only three of us had injuries. Thankfully, I was one of the three. Three of us had to be taken to um, hospital in Laramie, Wyoming, um, just with two minor head head injuries and uh, one ankle ankle injury. But thankfully, all of us are safe. All of us were okay. There was no major injury. Um, I got a scan and everything. I just had a concussion and a bit of um, other kind of temporal, temporary damage. Um, but I am okay. We are okay, thankfully. Um, thanks to our, again, to our wonderful driver. But that naturally has taken a little bit of time to recover from and to finish the tour and get home and just kind of get settled and retrail. So apologies for the delay, but that was the reason why. Um, and also I, a couple of days after getting back, I went in and to do my show, uh, A Bard is a Failed Poet at Seen and Heard at Smock Alley in Dublin, which uh, thankfully was a big success. Um, I was delighted with how it went down. It was very much a work in progress, like a first 20 minutes of a new show that will be developed and fleshed out further but I was delighted with the audiences that came and the response was fantastic and it was great to do it was a great new kind of different piece that was more of an amalgamation or a a fusing of different areas from the poetry to the stuff we cover on the podcast to the folk music and everything that I would play with in the Temple Bar and around, around other places so it was really it was a really lovely fusion piece to do and I was very delighted with it so with how it went down and um, with how happy I was with it, it certainly is something I'll develop into a further show. So if there are any listeners out there who were there, uh, thank you so, so much for your support. Um, if you were sent an email by Smock Alley, um, I would love to hear your feedback. Or if you didn't, you can message me directly on Instagram or email me with your thoughts on the piece. Um, but that is what has been going on the last couple of weeks. And that is the reason for my absence. But it is great to be back. And I'm recording this episode... Um, back home um, but this is an episode that was meant to come out a few weeks ago this has been written for a few weeks so it's nice to be revisiting it with fresh eyes and to be finally getting it out there and to finally getting back into the rhythm of Fireside and to not take another gap like that hopefully for accident or any other reason touch wood but the story for this week is a folktale I found in WB Yeats's book of Varian Folktales that just had a very, um, as you'll see, it has a very, I call these very grim-esque tales. There's a very Germanic tale feeling to these in that this is a story that feels like it could take place in a lot of different places, not even just specifically Ireland. I tend to think when stories are about kings or princes or queens that this is, there is always a very Germanic feel to them because the grim tales which revolve around very much stock archetypes um, of characters that tend not to have names but more have titles and they are more like uh, shadow puppets on a stage as Philip Pullman would describe them. Um, these always have a more universal feel to them and it tends to be what f- makes them feel more uniquely Irish is what is infused in the humour or in the delivery of them which naturally I like because this allows me to feel more personally involved in the story and in the adaptation. So we will chat more about it afterwards of course. But this is the long-awaited, certainly by me, a story of the proud princess on Fireside. The Proud Princess Once there was a king whose daughter was reported to be one of the most desirable women on the island of Ireland. But the girl was proud as Lucifer himself 
and would refuse to marry any suitor who would seek her hand in marriage. So the king, her father, invited every eligible king, prince and chieftain in Ireland to his house all at once. The king thought that if his daughter saw all her suitors at the same time, she would surely find a man she could tolerate, live with, and who knows, maybe even love. But when all the bachelors were lined up in the hall of the fort, the proud princess marched down the procession and with a swift, scathing comment rejected each one. She passed a man whom she thought was too fat. I'll not have you, bare barrel. She passed a man whom she thought was too thin. I'll not have you, pencil neck. One man was too pale. I'll not have you, ghost face. One man red-cheeked. I'll not have you, whiskey cheeks. Finally, the princess arrived in front of a man in whom she could not find any aesthetic fault in, even with her own lofty standards. The man was tall, well-proportioned, handsome with deep eyes. The clothes he wore looked like he wore them instead of the clothes wearing him. The only detail the princess could make out was the faintest amount of red hair growing on the man's upper lip and chin. I'll not have you... Whiskers, she said, and proudly walked away. After this incident, the king lost all patience with his daughter. I've tried to give you full say in the person you are to marry, but your pride, like the pride of everyone before or after you, will be your downfall. I've offered you kings and chieftains, rich and powerful men who could provide you with everything you could ever dream of, but you refuse them, every one. So, the next beggar or bard who drunkenly hobbles up to this keep will be your husband. The princess did not even have time to gauge whether or not her father was exaggerating before another wandering singer-poet arrived at the home. This bard was, of course, not one of the court poets who protected the verse and history of the king and only sang of great heroes and epic deeds. This was a freelance artist who was looked down upon by the great poets because he had the freedom to sing, speak and write about whatever he pleased, even something as insignificant and trivial as love. And sing of love the bard did. He sang a song of ordinary people, poor people who did not live in castles or keeps, but who found each other and loved each other and somehow managed to live happily. He sang the song in a rich, low and soft voice. Even the princess thought the song and the soul of the singer to be beautiful. But the princess also knew of the impending sequence of events. When the bard had finished his ballad, the priest was produced, and whether poet or princess wished it, the couple were married. The king said to his new son-in-law, Here's five guineas for a dowry, and I never want to see you or my daughter ever again. The next day, the princess and her new husband rode through the woods towards their new life. Whose woods are these? she asked the bard. They belong to the king whom I believe you called Whiskers. Oh, what a proud fool I was, thought the princess. 
He was the best suitor of them all, and I just had to find some fault in him. Who knows the life I could have had, rather than being the bride of a penniless poet. The princess began to cry at her situation. Her new husband did not like to see her upset, so he sang for her. The princess admitted he had a beautiful voice and sang of wonderful tales. She even thought he wouldn't be that bad-looking if he trimmed his messy hair and beard. But the princess could not see past her husband's clothes and financial situation, and she began to cry once more. After riding through the wooded forests, flowery meadows, and wheat fields of King Whiskers, the bride and groom arrived at a tiny, rotting wooden shack. "'Why have you brought me here?' asked the princess. "'This is your new home,' said the bard. "'It isn't much now, but I'm sure together we could make something of it.' The princess had never done a thing for herself her entire life, so the prospect of chopping wood, lighting a fire, or boiling a pot were as strange to her as an Irishman is to the sun. Worst of all for the princess, not only did she now have to do menial labour around the house— she would also have to get a job to help make ends meet. Her husband taught her to weave baskets and sculpt ceramic pots. Her delicate hands ached, but soon she had enough wares to go to sell to the market. And although the princess had never been to a market before, much less sold wares at one, her beauty and sorrowful countenance ensured that she sold out of every pot, plate, and basket she had. The proud princess was rather pleased with herself. She actually hadn't minded selling at the market, and she had found herself quite capable of being polite and even friendly to her potential buyers. The only time her pride got the better of her was when a man had asked her if she wanted to go to the pub to share a quart of whiskey, and she had smacked the man across his drunken face. The princess arrived home, and her husband was delighted at her apparent job satisfaction. So the next day she set out with more items to sell. However, like a joke that loses its punch on a second hearing, the princess did not have as much success on her second day at the market. A drunken huntsman arrived, and callously smashed every one of her wares. The princess ran home in tears. Her husband was disappointed with the loss of income and property, so he said, Maybe market selling isn't the job for you after all. Tomorrow you will go and work as a kitchen maid in the castle. I have an inn with the cook. You'll work the days, and they'll give you great free food to take home at night. The princess liked the idea of being a kitchen maid even less than being a market seller. She had lived in a keep, and had had kitchen maids attending to her. Now she would be the servant. That day was the hardest for the princess since she had left home. The work was difficult, the pressure immense, and the other kitchen workers slobbered over her trying to get a kiss. But the cook protected her from these unwanted advances. He proved kind, and sure enough gave the princess an apron full of food to take home. On her second day as a scullery maid, the princess learned that good King Whiskers himself was to be married. No one knew whom the bride was, but a massive feast and ball would be held in the castle that night. The princess worked all day preparing and carrying the food for the feast, 
and when she was done, she got her apron full of food and was ready to leave. But the cook stopped her. Before you go, we should at least have a look at the feast and the ball that we helped create. You should at least witness the fruits of your labor. The cook brought the princess up to the main hall, filled with food and fire and celebration. Soon King Whiskers himself appeared, looking even more perfect than the princess remembered, having even shaven off his whiskers. The princess turned to leave, but the king approached the cook and said, This maid must pay for the price of joining our feast. She must dance with me. The princess was reluctant, but King Whiskers took her by the hand and brought her to the center of the hall. Hardly had they danced two steps when all of the food the princess had in her apron spilled messily on the floor. The utterly humiliated woman turned and ran, but the king grabbed her and said, Do you not recognize me, my love? I am not only King Whiskers, but also the drunken huntsman who destroyed your wares at the market. And most of all, I am already your husband, the bard. Your father wanted you to have a happy life, and one without pride, so he planned this elaborate ruse to teach you a lesson. The princess was angry, upset, relieved, overjoyed, and above all, the princess found she was in love. She had appreciated her husband's kindness, when she thought him poor and pointless. Truly, if she could love a bard as a king, she could love a king as a bard. The End Hey guys, Tom Moran here. I am the host of Personality Bingo, a podcast where we put 60 minutes on the clock. We've got a bingo machine with 60 balls in it. Here you go. And we've got 60 corresponding questions. The questions can be anything from have you ever seen a ghost to what's the most important quality for you and a romantic partner to have you ever or would you ever consider seeing a fortune teller. In season two of Personality Bingo, we've got episodes with Brezzy. We've got Emma Kerwin. We've got Justine Stafford. If you want to go back into the archives, we've got 130 episodes there, including episodes with Paul Meskel. That's Personality Bingo with me, Tom Moore. And that is the tale of the proud princess on Farside. He has a wonderfully, wonderfully tight story and that very Grimm-esque Germanic influence. I'm sure there is some version of this story in in the Grimm tales that either was inspired by this story or vice versa. But there is certainly elements. I mean, we have your elements of Cinderella. There's almost something kind of Aladdin-esque, or at least the Disney version of Aladdin, with the the prospect of the suitors and the daughter being choice forced to marry. But so we have this this very proud this very proud woman, and there's no initially. It's not as if she's being, or at least doesn't feel like she's being forced necessarily to marry. Just all of these suitors are coming because. They've heard of her beauty and her wealth and who her family is and all of that kind of very traditional, very traditional old-fashioned fairy tale stuff. And she dismisses each one of these out of hand. And pride is always a very 
strong theme, especially in these kind of stories, because when you have an aspect like pride, you usually have hubris. And hubris was, of course, the favorite of the ancient Greeks. Nearly every ancient Greek story is a tale of hubris, especially when the mortals are concerned about someone who believes that they can do one thing and then they actually cannot. Whether it's Icarus flying too close to the sun or Phaeton, the son of Apollo, who also flies too close to the sun and nearly destroys the entire world in the process. There are countless tales and all of hubris. So for it to be a tale of hubris and to really lean into that, and some of these were taken from the original, some of these condemnations of these men, but it was interesting and to lean into that, uh, that she really did have to be horrible to these men. And then the greatest punishment of all, that he would be, she would be married to either a beggar or a poet, and sure, aren't they one and the same? And... But of course, the twist is that this beggar is, uh, this beggar poet is kind to her. And as they're walking through, her punishment seems to worsen as she passes through the lands and fields and forests of the man she could have married, the man she thought was handsome and thought was perfect and seemed like the ideal husband, but her pride wouldn't let her in the game. Because that's another thing that pride can do. It can actually stop us from finding happiness because we cannot let a guard down. So the princess finds that she's living in the shack and has to do menial labor for the first time, and then she has to get a job, and she gets the job as the market seller and finds success in it at her first day of work and is delighted with herself, but then on the second day, this drunken huntsman ruins that for her, and she can't do that anymore. And then she has to do an even worse, an even more menial job, a lower job for her coming as a princess. And that is to work in a kitchen for another king or prince, uh, the ultimate switch of fate. And this work is hard for her. And then the final, not even insult, but the final culmination is that she has to witness this feast, this ball that she is not invited to, and she's forced to dance with the prince with the king, and then all of this food that she's been hiding in her hiding in her apron that has been given to her for her day's work, it spills out, and this is the ultimate humiliation. She was she has totally come full circle of the idea of having been able to almost get there so many times. Like she found she was finding the good sides and the kindness in her husband, but couldn't get past who he was and what he would not be able to do for her. And then the success at market, but then having her property destroyed, she had the job satisfaction, but that was taken away from her. And then to be at this ball, dancing with this king that she could have married, and then for all of this food to spill over the ground. And then, of course, the final twist, that the king is actually her husband. And this was this incredibly elaborate and cruel ruse by her father to teach her a lesson about pride and about hubris. And it works beg your pardon, the headphones slipped off my head as I said that last phrase. We have this this rapid change because it's another aspect of fairy tales and folk tales is they tend to wrap up quite quickly. They wrap up as quickly as they ended. And to our modern sensibilities where we like things wrapped up nice and neatly in a bow and we like things to be wrapped up, it can sometimes 
be a lot of my job to contextualize at the end and not try and over elaborate but to give something that that gives more of a narrative satisfaction to myself I guess because if I feel if there's something that's bothering me that's not as clear to me I like to clear it up so that hopefully the story will be clearer to all of you um, but maybe most of you are smarter than me and don't need the added clarification but certainly in the writing of it sometimes it helps for me and so of course you would go through this gamut of emotion if you were in this princess's position and having been duped by not only your father but by your husband but then a husband who was kind to you and that you found you might be able to love and who had taught you these crafts and had got you this job all of these things that you considered far far beneath your station but you had been able to see through that and then the revelation that not only is he a good kind and decent sort he's also a king so that is the gamut that she has to run of the anger and the upset and the relief and then ultimately to find the love once more the love that was always there bubbling beneath the surface so there's a lot in this story that uh, feels old-fashioned like in a lot of these tales and sometimes I like to soften these stories without um, or not even soften just again make them as clear as possible and and if they can become more relevant, whether it's the story I did about Rent Day or something like this, if I can make it seem more relevant and less of a museum piece, because obviously a subject like pride, the idea of anyone having to be forced to be married and such a cruel turn around is an awful thing, but subjects and themes like pride and hubris and finding love beneath and being able to look past how someone looks on the outside, these still are very, very relevant themes. And so that was um, what made me highlight this story. And also, as I've said frequent times, I love when, when poets or bards or storytellers are featured within the context of the story, because that just always... As someone who does this, it's always nice to write about those. I don't know what that says about me. But I did, to be fair, get to explore, um, certainly in the earlier part of the story when the bard is first introduced, some of the things that I actually got to explore in A Bard as a Failed Poet, my show that I'm developing at the moment that I did not Seen and Heard in Dublin. And uh, those were some of the concepts about the, the role of the bard as opposed to the court poet, the court poet who was sanctioned by the king and held a hugely, hugely powerful position at court and had huge amounts of lands and respect and responsibility, but was also very restricted and limited to only write about the deeds of gods and kings and then later in Christianity only of one god, whereas the bards who didn't have, who were the failed B.A., because it was said that it took 12 years training to become a poet, but it only took seven years training to become a bard, which led to bards being quite marginalized because they were the ones who didn't have the same level of learning or understanding as it was perceived as the poets. They were the ones who wandered around without lands and lordships and who just brought stories and music and poetry to the people and sang for their supper and sang for coppers um, and more for the sake of it. But they also had a freedom that the poets did not have. They had a freedom to sing about nature and love and many of the things that the poets couldn't. So it was nice to 
get to explore that a bit in this story and um, touch on that. And that's probably one of the reasons why this this story stuck out with me. But as always, I'm very interested to hear what you all think, particular with... Um, because like, I tend to... I never really know how I stand on stories with um, moral. Um, I would say if I had any leaning, I would say I don't like it because stories that are moral or certainly have a moral theme tend to come across a bit preachy and I like a bit more of an ambiguity there. I like that if a story has something and you can take something from it, that's brilliant, but I don't like the idea of it being forced down which is why I don't think I've ever really grafted towards Aesop's fables, like the tortoise and the hare and slow and steady wins the race and that kind of thing. They're just very overt. It's all about the message rather about the tale itself. Although uh, with what I'm doing at the moment with exploring other world mythologies and stories, it might be interesting to revisit Aesop's fables properly as an adult. But then again, because I'm all of these stories are so old and... There are some stories that I find that I feel don't have any relevancy or don't have a good message. And the message in this could be in this story could be perceived as dated, especially the concept of a woman being forced to marry. But I feel like the fantasy element and the theme of pride and hubris means that there's still something relevant in it. But I'm very interested to see if this resonates with anyone or if this is some seen as a good story or a bad story. As always, I'd like to hear all your thoughts. So I will wrap things up there, uh, but thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this tale. Next week, I'm actually very excited, um, so continuing our current trend with Fireside of alternating between an Irish folktale, an Irish myth, and a world tale, uh, the next subject we are doing for the story next week is, again, someone I probably wanted to do since the very, very early days of this podcast, uh, someone I, a character I discovered through the work of Neil Gaiman, through his books, um, through two of his books and it is the West African trickster god Anansi Anansi is the spider god trickster god who is the custodian of all story and he features very prominently in Neil Gaiman's works American Gods and then in his own uh, story Anansi Boys which is the tale of um, two of the god's children with frequent references to old Anansi tales so I'm very excited. It, it it came kind of naturally. It seemed naturally having done something on the Greeks and something on the Grimm um, that this felt like the next impetus to go to and explore an Anansi story. So I very, very much look forward to sharing that with you all and exploring that this week. Um, so I will see you all next time. All the usual things. Spore me over on f- uh, Instagram. Apologies there. At Fireside Bard. I went to say support me at Fireside Bard on Instagram. I was like... Pff at firesidebard or email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com with any questions, queries, thoughts, comments, inquiries, any of that kind of crack. Uh, you can buy my book, Garden Sea, A Neomyth of Home, uh, available on Kindle version at Amazon or in paperback we can ship anywhere along the world. Thank you so much to all those who continue to buy it. Support the podcast directly at Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com. All the links are in the description below. I will see you all. You'll hear me all next time. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.